we are in, these are the last words of David. We're going to be in chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. But first, let me pray and ask God to direct us and guide us through this. Jesus, I, um, Lord, you know, I, I didn't have as much time as I like to prep for this because I was finishing school and other things. But Lord, you are faithful. You are good. Would you lead us and guide us in this incredible passage, this brilliant passage, this prophetic passage? Would you show us what it means for David? Would you show us what it means for human history? And would you show us what it means for each of us? Lord, this is an incredible thing to say that David says, that he has the privilege of knowing how he fits in your story. That's incredible. For someone to say, I know my purpose, I know why I was born, and I have, I'm living that out, Lord, would you help us to do that today too? Thank you for David and his life that we've gotten to inspect, that we've gotten to talk about and imagine and criticize, analyze, um, that's inspired us. Thank you for choosing him. And Lord, I, I'd really ask that you'd guide us now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm gonna read seven verses of 2 Samuel 23. I think we've got it up there on the screen. Now, these are the last words of David. He had other last words, by the way, to his son Solomon. You can read about that in 2 Kings. He also had words to say, last words to the Levites. You can read about that in Chronicles. But this is the passage that Samuel has chosen to end this book. Um, These are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high. The anointed of, of the God of Jacob. The sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my salvation and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and a shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. The last words of David. The last words of David. Incredible. Um, first of all, literarily, let me just say, this really, this really brings the bookends of Samuel together. Um, this last song or poem that we read from David has 
all of the same themes as Hannah's song written in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. She calls Yahweh a rock. She speaks about the king as an anointed, the Mashiach, the Messiah. David visits all of those things here as well. And so there's, there's a fitting ending here and themes that literally run from the beginning of the book to the very end of the book, really bringing it to a nice conclusion. But what strikes me about this here is that David is basically able to say, I know what my life is about. Have you met somebody with that kind of surety? With that kind of security, that kind of surety, that kind of purpose? Have we met? I mean, I, I would be willing to argue that though we might meet people like that, it's pretty rare in, in, in our day. To have somebody who knows, I was born with a destiny, with a purpose, and I know what it is. I think we can meet a lot of people that feel that they are born with a destiny and a purpose, but maybe don't know what that is. I, I know as a pastor, I get a lot of questions. I mean, one of the, I, probably, I don't even count it, but maybe one of the most frequent questions I'm asked is, what is God's purpose for me? What is God's will for my life? And here David is able to say, God has shown me. God has spoken an oracle to me. He's spoken prophetically to me. And my life has played that out. Have you ever wondered what your purpose is? Do you walk around? Well, let me ask you this, and you don't have to answer, but I, I want to plan it in your mind. Do you, is what drives you in the morning, do you wait, it, when you wake up in the morning, do you operate from what you know your purpose is? <clears throat> Do you say, um, I'm, I'm waking up because I am Mike who was called by God to do this? Or I am going to work, and yeah, I'm getting paid, and I'm taking care of my family, and I'm doing all of this, but beyond that, I am fulfilling this purpose. God has called me to do this. I don't know if we do. I, I mean, I, I don't know if we do. I think we get in the rat race, we get, we get in the, the grind, you know, we fall into the rut. But David has this incredible sense of purpose on his life, and what I want to argue and what I hope to show you is that David's, in seeing David's purpose, perhaps also we will have a clue into what ours is also. There's something, and my point is, there's something both unique and individual about David's call but also very universal and human in general about David's call that I think we can all learn from. David is the man, first of all. I love how he introduces himself. He starts, I'm the man, the son of Jesse. Uh, you remember, when we met David, he was in absolute obscurity out in some field in this little village called Bethlehem, and he was so obscure, obscure that his own father didn't really take much notice of him. And he says in, this, in the beginning of this psalm that God plucked him out of, of obscurity, that God raised him up on high and, gave, and showed him he's an anointed man to do something very specific. 
That's what David says that God told him about himself. And you'll find the real impetus of this in the center of this psalm. If you want to look into it, you know, we've been talking about the, the epilogue of Samuel having a chiastic structure. Well, this psalm in and of itself, and I won't go into the details, has a chiastic structure as well, meaning it works its way from the edges into the middle, showing us that this is the main point. This is what he wants you to see. And we find it <clears throat> the main uh, word that God spoke to him about his life is at the end of verse 3. He says, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, and here it is, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. And then David says, this is him. For does not my house stand so with God? Isn't that me? That's me in my house. That's me in my family. For he has made an everlasting covenant with me. That's 2 Samuel verse 7. This incredible Davidic covenant that God made with, Sam, or with, uh, excuse me, with David. And it's ordered in all things and it's secure. What's the point of David's life? What is he called David to do? What's the purpose? To rule. To lead. To rule people. Why? Why? Well, look at the metaphor. At the end of verse 4, it says, Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like the rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. The idea is, is that sun and rain causes flourishing, causes growth, causes health, causes goodness. The idea here is that humans need to be ruled and to be led in order that they may grow and flourish and become the people that God has always called us to be humans need to be led and you know and we know this we know it deep down why is it that we long for a ruler have you noticed that we in our society in every society even in america the land that has broken off from monarchy that, that left in rebellion from Great Britain to be our own people, that we seem to balk government, government and balk authority, we are still trying to crown people. If you don't believe me, ask Taylor Swift, who came last weekend and left $26 million richer from her audience, 95% of which were female, by the way. We're looking, we're looking for a ruler. We're looking for someone that says, this is what it means to be human. We're looking for someone to say, this is the good life. This is the life that we all know. This is how I can relate to you, and this is where we're going. Um, we're looking for a ruler to fix everything. We sense that we're not right. We sense that we're not right. We have a sense that society is not right. And so we're looking for someone to fix it. You know, the famous... The famous statement of 45, Donald Trump, in the Republican National Convention, he said, I alone can fix it. And in some way or another, every politician basically runs on that platform. This is broken, and I'm the one that can fix it. Align yourselves with me. 
And we're just beginning at what's turning out to be a nasty and very historical election cycle. And you can see this. We are looking for a ruler. We're looking for someone that can lead us out and bring us to the America and really the humanity, the story of the human, uh, the human story of human flourishing that we think it ought to be. We're suckers for this. We resonate with this. All humans are. Um, why is it? In Star Wars, there is, a, there is a prophesied chosen one who will come and bring balance to the force. We eat this stuff up. We eat this stuff up. It's Anakin who crazily turns into Darth Vader. But, one, but there's a descendant that will come from him that will redeem the Vader clan. <laughs> you know, we, we eat this stuff up. It, why? Because it deeply resonates with something in us. I think something ancient, something spiritual, it deeply resonates. Harry Potter is all about a boy who is the only one that can destroy the one who shall not be named. <laughs> in the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn is the long-awaited king and things can't be right until he takes his rightful place on the throne of Gondor again. There's just been a steward up to this point. We need the return of the king. And that's when we can finally go out and have victory. All these stories, they all, by the way, did you know all these stories, I just, as I was researching for this, a little, even just last night, just poking around on my computer, they outsell all these fantasy stories outsell realistic fiction 10 to 1, 20 to 1, 30 to 1. In fact, at one point, Hollywood elites were saying that, fa uh, that fantasy stories will be a thing of the past at some point. Fantasy stories will be a thing of the past at some point, that that genre of, or that medium of art will go away, and boy, have they been wrong. It just continues to sell and continues to grip the public's imagination. Why? I think because we have something in us that deeply resonates. We're looking, we see it. We're looking for someone to lead us. Why is it that in our so-called egalitarian democracy, that when we don't have royalty, we create it? We're crowning someone. We create it out of our celebrities. Or we create it out of our spouses. Or we create it out of politicians or religious leaders or authority figures. We must have it. And so as much as we might hate it, we still go about doing it. I think we hate that we need it in America, perhaps. We hate that we need someone. But we do. Why this hunger for a ruler? Why this indelible need to crown somebody, whether it be psychologically or sociologically or culturally, whatever it is? Why? Well, the answer is that it's an ancient memory. It's an ancient memory baked into the, into the DNA of the human race. Here's what I mean. There's a faint but powerful magnetism inside of each of us, what I call an ancient memory, that knows we need someone to bring us back to God, and we need someone to remind us of what it means to be truly human, to live to our, the greatness of our potential. We need someone to show us that. And maybe this is why the Bible's ancient account of things and how things went is so, so compelling. The Bible says that after the golden age of Eden, everything went horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. 
Mankind was with God. We were flourishing in the presence of God. We were teeming and growing and healthy because we were with God. But suddenly, shockingly, when you get to chapter 3 in this utopia, this perfect situation, shockingly, when you get to chapter 3, mankind was deceived into thinking that they were better off without God. That they could get wisdom without him and that he was somehow trying to hold it back from them. And so we went our own way. And as a result, you guys, everything fell apart. We lost our place with the source of our life, with the source of health, with the source of our potential of humanity. We lost our spot. But God said one last thing to them before he kicked them out of Eden. It was a word of hope before he vanished off the scene. The last thing God said to them face to face, not prophetically, that's not what I mean, but face to face. In chapter 3, you can read about it in verse 15. He basically said, I have one thing to say before I go. It's a word of hope. Yes, things are horrible right now. You've you've made a mess. Things are terrible. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be murder and disease, and abuse, and hatred, and hurt like you you wouldn't even imagine for the fallout of what you have done, all of those things. But someday, I'm going to send someone to rule you, and he's going to go to war with evil, and he's going to win. Now think about that. If that was the last thing God, face to face, said to mankind, no one, you, you would think that that would burn into Adam and Eve's mind, wouldn't it? As they are cast out east of Eden into the wild world and all this war and all this stuff started to go between them, you know, they're, what are they holding on to? Someone's coming for us. Someone's coming for us. Someone's going to bring us back. Someone's going to fix what we've broken. Someone is going to remind us of what it means to be human again. And, we are, and, and I think we are looking for him still. I think that has been baked into the memory of our mind from generation to generation to now it is just simply human to long for someone, to need someone. That's why we crave a ruler a promised ruler. And David here is saying, that's my place. David shows up after a long line of, the, of God raising up rulers. David shows up and says, that's where I fit. That's where I make sense in God's story. God brought me and raised me up out of obscurity. I was nobody. I'm just a man, a son of Jesse, a no one. And God raised me up to rule, but to rule in such a way that would bring us home again, that would make us flourish again, that would remind us of what it means, the glory of what it means to be a human being again. That is where I fit. How? Well, notice he says, through justice and the fear of God. Um, This is verse 3b, the last half. He says, when one rules justly 
over men, ruling in the fear of God. That's the Hebrew word sadakah, which is usually, interestingly enough, translated into the word righteousness. And this word is, is almost always in Scripture, except for this point. It's definitely implied. But this word is almost always in Scripture paired with another word, which is mishpat, which is justice. Um, scholars call it sadakah mishpat because they're like twin words. They go together, and it's the Bible's way of getting across an idea to you that a ruler will rule and give and use his or her power to give at great expense to him or herself for the flourishing of others. That's the Bible's idea of justice. Sadaka mishpat. Righteousness and justice. Our idea of justice is a little different. You know, I hear a lot of people say, the Bible's all about justice, and it is. It's true. But what we mean by the word justice and what the Bible means by the word justice are not, the same, not exactly the same thing. When we, when we use the word justice, what do we typically mean? Revenge. Okay, revenge because something has not been fair, right? So we think of fairness, we think of equity, we think of, um, you know, if, if I have two sandwiches, it makes sense, there's one for you and one for me, Right? We think of like equal pay, we think of things being right, we think of things being fair. And the Bible would say, yes, except the Bible shows justice in giving at a loss to the giver. It takes it a step further. It'd be as if saying, I have, there's one sandwich and two of us, and you're hungry, and I have resources. This is Sadaqah Mishpat. I'm going to give to Nathan. I'm actually going to trade places with him so Nathan knows what, it's, what it means to have resources and I know what it means to be him, to, have, to not have resources. We're talking about the Union Gospel Mission and how we can serve the homeless. It's one thing to have an extra meal or to buy two meals, one for me and one for them. It's another thing to say, I want to know a dim hint of what it's like to be you. I'm going to go without a meal so that you can have a dim hint of what it's like to be me. You can have a meal. So for the next hour, when my stomach groans, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to think of that person. I know, I know what it's like. And because of my sacrifice, their stomach is not groan, groaning. They have a full belly. See? That's the Bible's idea of sadaqah mishpat, of justice. And here David is saying it is a ruler that rules like that that helps people to flourish. For a fuller description of that kind of ruler, you can read, well, I'm going to read it to you, Psalm 72. He gets a lot more... Uh, descriptive. Let me read it to you. This is the kind of ruler that the Bible is, is saying that you and I should vote for. Think of this as, a, as a, someone's campaign. Think of this. God, uh, excuse me, this is Psalm 72. This is Solomon, by the way, not David. This is David's son, Solomon. He says, this is a prayer to God. God, give the king your justice. There's our word, mishpat. Give the king your justice, O God, and your 
righteousness, tzedakah. Again, they're usually always together. You'll see it throughout this whole thing. Give the king your justice and give the king your righteousness. In other words, not what the world thinks of justice and righteousness, but give your, your brand, your kind of justice, your kind of righteousness. May he, may he judge, oh, excuse me, to your royal son. Now he's talking about himself. May he judge your people with sadaqah. There it is again. Righteousness and your poor with justice, mishpat. So he says it again. Let the mountains bear prosperity for your people. So you hear what's happening here. He's saying, Sadaka mishpat. This is what this is why I want to rule with your justice and your righteousness. And here's what will happen if I do. Solomon is saying. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Can you imagine a leader like that? May he defend, number one, defend the cause of the poor. This is what Sadaka Mishpat will do to cause flourishing. Firstly, he'll defend the cause of the poor. He'll give deliverance to the children of the needy and he will crush bad guys, oppressors, people that are siphoning people's misfortune to make themselves richer. That's what a leader will come against for people to flourish. May they fear you, and here's our metaphors of Samuel 23. While the sun endures, and as long as, the, the, as there is the moon throughout all generations, may he be like the rain that falls on the, on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. It's, it's borrowing from the same wisdom of his father David. Someone who rules like this, who takes care of the poor, defends the needy, crushes the oppressor. It will be like rain on people and they will begin to grow and flourish the way we were meant to. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish of the, of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve a ruler like this. In other words, he's saying, this is the ruler of rulers. This is the guy we're all looking for. He's the ultimate, the super ruler that we all intrinsically know we need. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. Do you, do you see where his focus is, this candidate for rulership? The needy, the poor, the needy, the poor, the needy, the poor, the poor, the needy, the poor, the needy. It's, the, the scholars call this the Old Testament quartet. That rulers that rule well, their priority are the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. The immigrant, the foreigner. Long may he live. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. 
May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all day long because he's such a gift to mankind. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and many people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. Tall nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Then he brings it to God. This is God. Blessed be his, his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. You see what's happening here. When someone rules with Sadaqah Mishpat, look at all the wonderful things that begin to happen. Growth. Flourishing. Love. Bad leaders, on the other hand, if we keep reading it, are like thorns and thistles. Look at Psalm, back to Psalm 23. He says, But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. Yeah, you, we all, I mean, we are, we're very familiar with this in the Northwest. We know what a blackberry bush will do if we try to just run right in there and take it with our hands and pull it out. We will be in trouble. But the man who touches them first arms himself with iron and a shaft of a spear and a stick wax it with a stick so there's some distance, or he just sets the field on fire. He just burns those bad boys to the ground, right? That's what, he, that's what he does. Thorns and thistles. Why are thorns and thistles so bad for your plants? Yeah, they, they, instead of like the sun and the rain that give, thorns and thistles take. They use their power to take nutrients from others so that they get stronger. In fact, that is the source of their, their rapid growth. They are taking from everything around them to make themselves strong and big and thorny and foreboding and threatening. The Bible is saying that is a wicked leader. Yeah, Kristen. Yeah, it certainly reminds us of that, doesn't it? Where a, uh, she's referring to a weed that can choke out the good seed. So leaders have, bad leaders have power to do some real damage, some major damage, to hurt, to, ch- to choke out the seed. In the parable that Kristen is bringing up here, um, the seed is the word of God. Bad leaders have the power to choke out the seed of the gospel. Don't we see that? Today I talk to so many people, more and more people that are disillusioned and disillusioned and disillusioned with church in the West. Because, quite frankly, of leadership that has gone really bad character that has taken down a church or a scandal that's been exposed to the public or some abuse of some sort or all of those things, um, people are, I'm not interested anymore. The power of a, of a bad leader, we know it well. And, it, and what does a bad leader make, what does a bad leader do? 
make us long for a good one, right? In fact, the next person that comes and campaigns will use the bad of the, bad of the previous administration to make you thirsty and long for a better leader. The point is, this is something ancient that works, that works to point toward our need for leadership and rulership, whether it's good or bad. And David, David was a mixture of both in reality. David was a mixture of both. The problem is that David did not realize this high calling of his. He is a dim hint of it. He was enough of an example. He's a dim hint of it, but he did not fulfill this. And you guys, if you keep reading, you will find out very quickly that very, very, very few of his descendants realize this. Son of David after son of David after son of David after son of David after son of David ended up being a very, very, very wicked king, a thorny king that brought in idol worship and the, 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 uh, the culture around them and the worship of, of the pagan gods around them brought them in like thorns, sucking Israel's passion for Yahweh right out of the land. You can trace, uh, after um, Solomon's kingdom, the, the kingdom will split north to south, and you'll have two different lines of kings. You can trace them both. David's is just barely slightly better than the, nor than the northern kingdom. We like to think, oh, look, David's did really well, and the, and the, other, the, the uh, northern you know, kings, did. they're the bad ones. Uh, no, actually, not really. It's pretty much split. It's, it's an even split. And maybe David's line wins by a nose. Then Jesus came. Then Jesus came. I, I, want you, I want to do something with you guys. I want you to close your eyes. And I want, to, I want you to imagine this description of the person of Jesus. Imagine, this, imagine meeting a person like this. Here's a description of Jesus. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's about love. The Bible tells us that God is love and God came in Jesus. So I'm going to put his name there. Imagine a person like this. Jesus was patient. This is how people described him. Jesus was kind. Jesus was not envious. Think of that. He didn't long to be someone else. He didn't covet someone else's life. He was so secure in his own skin. Jesus, here's a good one, Jesus did not boast. Of all the ways people could describe Jesus, one of them was he didn't boast. He didn't throw his weight around. He's God, King of kings, and yet he didn't think equality with God is something to be grasped. Jesus was not arrogant. He didn't have an air of arrogance about him. He didn't have arrogance about him. Think of this. Jesus was not rude. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Jesus is not rude. Jesus did not insist on his own way. 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. But you have a choice. Jesus did not insist on his own way. Jesus was not irritable. Think of a human like this. Not irritable. Jesus is not resentful. (laughs) Of all the people that hurt him, of all the people that betrayed him, he did not get resentful. Jesus did not rejoice at wrongdoing, but he rejoiced in truth. Jesus bared all things. Jesus believed all things. Jesus hoped all things. Jesus endured all things. Jesus never ends. Think about meeting a person like that. No wonder people followed him. And no wonder others hated him. We're talking about a person, you can open your eyes now, we're talking about a person with such moral gravity, such moral weight, that when he walked in the room with these traits emanating from his being, just exuding as this is how his followers would describe him. What was Jesus like? They would say, okay, well, let's see, he was, he was patient. What else was Jesus like? You know one thing that sticks out to me? He was just so kind. And another disciple might say, you know another thing? He never wanted someone else's stuff or wanted someone else's life. He never envied anything. He didn't, he was so content. Even though a lot of times we didn't have a place to sleep. Foxes had dens and birds had nests, but he didn't have a place to, and yet he didn't walk around thinking, man, I wish I had that life. But boy, he was powerful. And then another disciple would say, yeah, but you know what? He, he didn't boast, did he? And the other disciples would say, yeah, I don't remember ever a time where he like bragged about who he was. Even when Judas betrayed him, you know, you guys, he was never resentful. I don't think he said one bad thing about that guy. In fact, he kissed him and called him friend. Do you go, another disciple that was there, maybe John, you guys, I was, you guys all ran, but I was there. John, when, he, when, I, when he, I saw him on the cross, you know what he said? What did he say? He looked at this crowd that's spitting at him and killing him, and he said, I'll never forget it. He said, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the disciples go, wow, who is like this? And Peter says, I'll follow him to the end. I'd follow that guy to the end. I'd follow that guy to the end. Think of a person like that. He came and he ruled through Sadaka Mishpat. He, where was his focus? He was healing the sick. He was preaching to the poor. He was loving the unlovable. He was inviting the sinners and the tax collectors. He was eating with them. He was with, he was with them, spending time with them. He was ruling, and because of that, the region that he was in began just to flourish. Here's what I'm getting at. The story of the gospel and the story of Jesus is not just a perfect man who was God who died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven and go to heaven. 
That's not the story. In fact, if you notice um, all of the Western creeds that we love, we love the Christian creeds, but if you notice, if you, if you read them carefully, as I have done, they focus on the beginning of Jesus' life when he was born, Christmas, and then they focus on his crucifixion, his, well, his deity, and his crucifixion, and his resurrection, and his ascension, and rightfully so, but what is cons- uh, conspicuously missing is his life. He was a person with such patience, kindness, comfortability, moral power that he drew people to him to follow him. And his life was so powerful that it began to heal people. People began to flourish. Let me read Matthew chapter 8, verse 16 through 17 gives us a snapshot into the power of Jesus' life. Again, imagine a person that has this kind of power. That evening, they brought to him, they're drawn to him, they brought to him those who were oppressed by demons. So Jesus is there and they think to themselves, people are around Jesus and they're just taking in his person and they think to themselves, I've got to get oppressed and sick people into into this guy's orbit. Because I feel healthier in me. There's a sense of just the proximity of being with this guy makes me remember what it means to be really me. This is what we're all supposed to be like. And I got to bring others into his orbit. And they will, I just know they're going to be healed. So they bring, he cast out spirits with a word and healed those who were sick. And look, Matthew adds this. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took, our, he took our illness and bore our disease. You know, in other words, here's the picture. It wasn't Jesus walking through just going, boom, healed. Boom, healed. Vote for, vote for Jesus. Healed. Healed. Like throwing out miracles. No. It was Sadaka Mishpat. He took their disease somehow into himself and bore it. He gave at expense. Remember the woman with the issue of blood? The crowd that was pressing in on him and she said, if I just, she's bleeding for, I think it was 12 years. And she said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. And remember, she touches him and Jesus stops and he says, power has, has gone out from me. In other words, I have lost, I've given something. Jesus, in his life, was ruling and redeeming the world by giving at cost to himself. And people were beginning to flourish and be healthy again. People were getting healed. People were beginning to act and be in their person the way they somehow knew they were always meant to be. The story of the gospel is a story of a human life so powerful and so flourishing that it could not be stopped even by a cross. Even by the worst the world could throw at this life, it could not be conquered And it conquered death itself and raised from the dead. That is the story of the gospel. And that means it's concrete. It's practical. It's in your body. It's tangible. 
That's the kind of life that he says we are to tap into. How? He says, let me rule you. Abide in me, in the source of this health, and you, my friends, we will begin to flourish. You know, there's a sense in every one of you, and I, I, don't have, I, I haven't talked to every one of you, but I know it because you're human and because you're fallen. There's a sense in every one of you where you know of areas where you ought to be something that you're not. And every once in a while, you catch a glimpse in someone else maybe that's got that going on, and you feel that pain. I think I'm supposed to be patient like that. I think I'm supposed to be patient like that. We'll adjust the mic. We'll have someone else tell you. I think I'm supposed to be long-suffering like that. I think, I think, man, I think my marriage and my children could flourish like that if I were to rule like that husband or like that wife. In other words, there's a disparity in all of us, isn't there? Of a vision of what it means to be human that we are not. And Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of that. I am the one that's, that's the ruler that's called to lead you back to God, but also to show you what a flourishing human life looks like and to help you tap into it. How do we tap into it? He says, abide in me. Let me rule over you. And you will begin to flourish. You will begin to heal. You will begin to slowly, maybe quickly in other areas, you'll begin to progressively realize who and what kind of a person you're called to be. What does it mean to be ruled by Jesus? Christians are people, quote, governed by God. This is our definition, like Israel. That's what the word Israel means. It means governed by God. That is the mark of a follower of Jesus. We have a ruler. That, that has, okay, Christians are not um, philosophical people. Christianity has a philosophy, but that's not what it is. We are a people ruled by a ruler. We're following a leader. That's the mark of a Christian. Christianity is not an ethic. We have ethics, but that's not what it is. Christians are people who are bowed and submitted to the king in every area of their bodily lives, which is everything, by the way. There is nothing you do outside of your body, and God made it that way. So that, again, this is very tangible. It's very, you can taste it. You can touch it. You can live it. It's embodied stuff. You submit yourself to the rule of the Messiah. That's what a Christian is. Christianity is not a psychology. It has a lot, there's a lot about psychology. Psyche is the Greek word for soul. There's a lot about that in the Bible. But that's not what it is primarily. Christianity we have a Lord, we have a ruler. Do you see where I'm going with this? Are you ruled by God? Are you governed by him? Am I governed by him? And to the degree that we are, 
health and flourishing will begin to happen right now in us in Seattle in 2023, now. Please abandon your idea of Christianity as, oh yeah, it sucks right here, right now, and this is all about suffering, but someday we'll die and we'll go to heaven and that's when it will be. To a degree, yes, it is suffering, absolutely. But that doesn't stop the life happening and surging through your body now. That will just, like Jesus, death won't be able to conquer you. You see what I'm saying? You live eternity in heaven now, and it's a trajectory, it's a continuum that goes into heaven. Are you flourishing, dear my dear friends, are we flourishing as a people? Are we flourishing as a church? Are we flourishing at our jobs, in our families? This isn't a shame thing. This is to say, are we being ruled by the only one that's like rain on our soul? And to that degree, here's the thing. Not only were you made to be ruled... This is my final point. You were made to rule. You were made to rule. You were made to be ruled. And these two go together. And you were made. You were made. I don't care what your personality is. You, as a human, were made to rule and to lead. Whether you're shy or gregarious, or outgoing, or introverted, in your own way, God made you to rule. And you are ruling, depending on who your heart's true master is. You you will rule like you are ruled. Let your heart be ruled by Jesus, and you will end up ruling like Jesus This is what it means to be a Christian. They're little Christs. They follow what Jesus called the way, his way, his way of life. And what does that mean? It means when Jesus starts to rule through Sadaka Mishpat in your life, you will do the same. People will describe you as, man, she's patient and so kind. Man, he doesn't, he has all this power. He doesn't throw his weight around. Seems like he came to serve, not to be served. She doesn't boast. Man, she's so comfortable in her own skin. She doesn't want someone else's life. You know, she doesn't let the social media culture make her feel lousy about her life. She's comfortable in her own skin. This is the kind of people that you are to be when you walk into a room, when you go out and do your life, that people can be drawn to the quality of character, blossoming and blooming, the health, the wholeness, blossoming and blooming in your still broken life. David said, God told me what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to rule. He's saying the same thing to you and me. David was a pointer to the one. He pointed to the ruler. Do you see that that's what we're doing? That is our lives. 
we enter into flourishing through following Jesus, really following him as best we can, and together. This is where we're going to head as a church. What does it mean practically in an embodied way to follow Jesus as our ruler and as our Lord? This is where we're headed. This is where the sermons are going to go. This is where we're going to learn. This is how we're going to structure our church. This is how we're going to talk to each other. This is how we're going to grow together. And part of this is together. I challenge you in the years ahead, in the year ahead, be together more. Follow Jesus together more. Show others. Man, it would be awesome if, if we could be the kind of lives that others in here would say, man, I want to follow Jesus the way she is, the way he is. And we can, we can be that presence of Jesus here on earth in Seattle. People ask me about, well, what's your plan for evangelism, Mike? Why don't you, why don't you guys do concerts in the park or, or um, you know, things like that? And so, I mean, it's legit. I mean, God, God uses those things. It's wonderful. But I'll tell you what I think right now, especially right now, the world sees the, the Christian events and programs. But do they see Christian people flourishing, broken but beautiful, flourishing and growing in character and moral gravity not as merit and earning salvation, but as a kind of person that reminds people in Seattle, man, I hope it's true. There's something about that guy that reminds me of how I know I ought to be. That's, the, that's what it means to be a human. I want that. As deep calls out to deep, there's something in me that knows I need that and knows I want that. That's evangelism, I think. And it takes time. It's not as flashy. But it's so powerful. And it starts here. This table represents Sadaqah Mishpat. Giving at great, um, at great cost to yourself. That's how Jesus ultimately, um, you know, stamped on the head of the devil. That's how he won over evil was through giving, not, and it, it, you know, it wasn't fair. It's not our version of justice, equitable. No, we, in the Jesus, we have a perfect, innocent, the best human that ever walked the planet, dying for the guilt of all of us horrible people in order to redeem it so that we could flourish. That's what this represents. And it represents our way of life and our pattern walking forward.